Well, shall we start, do you think? Sure. question that Woody raised last week uh, really stemmed from the phrase in verse 8 of uh, Second Thessalonians, which is you know, what we have begun to study. The second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the little church up there in Thessalonica. And uh, let's just quickly review once again the context of this, uh, this introductory chapter uh, before he gets into the real meat of chapter 2, which is quite an important chapter in the whole Bible. It's one of the most important chapters dealing with end time stuff. But this is a church that's being persecuted. It's being uh, persecuted severely. It's a church that is along a, a major east-west Roman road that we've talked about and the Roman governor um, of that particular area would want nothing but peace and stability. <clears throat> and Christians um, were stirring things up because of the nature of the gospel, and that is something that the Roman governor uh, would start to clamp down on. So they're being persecuted, whatever that meant. We don't know if someone were being martyred, put in jail, losing their property, all of those things happen. So as a result of this, the Apostle Paul writes them encouraging words to hang in there, to endure. We looked at the end of verse 4, for example. He uses that in all your persecutions and afflictions, you are enduring. Then he gives them encouragement. He gives them reasons to um, keep their focus on what God has promised. And so he says that in verse 7, He'll grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting, inflicting vengeance. Now here was the phrase that provoked Woody's question. On those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Now we'll then see, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. We'll talk about that in, in just a minute. But I don't remember the exact wording <clears throat> of Woody's question or, or comment, but I do remember he was sitting right here, which never happens. He never sits immediately to my right. So I believed it must have been a, an important reason, providentially, that God had you sit here. So he raised the question. And then I promised to answer it, and then... Fred, in the email reminder for this week's class, reminded me that I was to address this question. So this is what we're doing. Now, it, this, is, um, this is a major question, but from the Bible's perspective, it isn't that difficult of a question. It's a question that today in the 21st century in our kind of postmodern, post-Christian world that people are offended by this. But from the biblical perspective, it should not be offensive, but it is. Let's look at why. He says, who do not know God. And I'm sure almost all of your translations have that phrase, or it's, it's got to be that phrase because the, the Greek is so clear there. But it's one important point to note there. The word know. The word know is not just to know facts about God. That, you know, I believe there's a God, period. But it's, it's, it's an important uh, word for know, to know him personally, to know details about him personally. So how can God hold people accountable? 
how can God hold people accountable for knowledge about him? How can he, you know, at the end time, it talks of a great judgment. Uh, the Bible calls it the great white throne judgment. But how can he be a just God, a loving God, and a good God when he's going to send people, the phrase Peter uses, to eternal destruction? There are many people today who, for whatever the particular reasons might be, they say, and I've had people say this to me, you teach and preach that God is good. How do you explain that train accident last night where six people were killed? Why would a good God do that? How can you possibly say that God is going to take people that live in some jungle or third world area and hold them accountable for the truth about him and if they reject him, send them to eternal destruction? What kind of a God is that? It's a good question. And I've embellished Woody's question quite a bit there because I'm not sure that's all that he meant by his question. But the beginning, the beginning place to answer a question like that is what I've started to write up here on the board. There is a principle that is throughout the Bible. Now, I put it kind of a, like a, as a metaphor, as a figure of speech, but I don't think that's... Uh, hard for you to understand, that we as human beings are accountable for the light, and that's the metaphor, that's the figure of speech, for the light that we receive, for the light that we have. Now, when, and that's, a, that's actually a, a, a metaphor that Jesus uses when he talks about this issue. But what would be another way of um, unpacking the term light? Do you understand what I mean? That, that is a biblical word that's used. It's metaphor, it's figure of speech. But light received. What, what's another way of putting the term light? More tangibly would be hearing the gospel. Well, that so, could be. That could okay. be very specific. That could be the gospel that's focused on Jesus. That's correct. The truth? Truth. Uh, another figure uh, for unpacking light would be the truth. You're, you're accountable for the amount of truth that you have received. It doesn't matter how much truth you have received, but for the amount of truth you've received. Now, without me going any any further, does that make sense? So whatever truth God, whatever truth you've been exposed to about God, you're accountable for that. Putting it another way, the amount of truth that God has exposed you to or that in your situation that you are exposed to, God expects you to respond to that. And as you respond to that, he sends you more truth. But if you reject that truth, are you accountable for rejecting that truth? Now, the right answer to that, nobody's answering, but the right answer to that is yes. <laughs> you know... It's, it's such a simple concept in life because um, we, let me give you these ridiculous examples, but in a way they're not. The city of Omaha expects you to know the traffic laws of Omaha. 
They expect you to know that. They expect you to know what to do when a light turns red or you see a big sign that's red and it has S-T-O-P. They expect you to know that. And they expect you to obey that. They expect you to respond to that. What if you don't respond to that correctly? A little car with a red bubble on it is going to start chasing you and and is going to siren and pull you over and give you a little piece of paper that has a fine on it. Because the state of, uh, or the city of, Nebraska, of Omaha, Nebraska, expects you to know the laws and to respond to the laws. And if you don't respond to the laws, you're accountable. And often they will say ignorance of those ordinances is no excuse. You are supposed to know them. If you're going to get a car and you're going to get a license and you're going to have that car registered and you're going to have insurance, you're expected to know the laws. Does the IRS expect you to know the tax laws of the United States and respond to it? I'm saying something that's maybe silly, but it is that principle that is throughout this universe. That's the way God made it. There is a moral structure to this universe. One of, the, one of the things that frustrates me, to me so much is when I talk to an atheist or a naturalist, a person who doesn't believe in God or any spiritual world, they're, they're basic, the only place they can end up, for the most part, is we live in a random universe. Randomness is what governs us. I don't, and that's philosophical. You understand what I mean? No, but things are just random. Things just happen. And we are a product of randomness. And I, you know, I say to them, you know, that's, that's interesting that you say that. One guy said to me, humans are just a cosmic accident, a cosmic accident of evolution. There's no design to it. There's no purpose to it. Just an accident. And I, did, I remember looking at him and said, do you, you really believe that, don't you? And so if that is true, then why does it matter what I do or what you do? Because you're arguing that randomness explains everything so... Shouldn't everybody be able to do whatever they want, with whomever they want, in any situation they want? If Fred and I are in an argument, and it becomes an intense argument, I pull out a pistol and shoot him in the heart, why is that wrong if we live in a random universe? You follow me? Where there is no, there is no moral law, there is no governing ethic. What matters is who has the strongest amount of power and has the will to use that power. Well, you, know, you start thinking that way. I don't think any reasonable person wants to live in a world like that. So you keep coming back to where is, where is the moral law of God and what has he revealed? And so what Paul does in basing this principle, this is the foundational principle of Scripture. You are accountable for the amount of, again, I used the metaphor of light, but the truth about God that you've received. And so this is what he argues in the first three chapters of Romans. Now, that, in a way, this is separate from the book, the particular section in the book of Romans, but it too is all over the Bible, but it's especially stated there. Jesus, we'll get to that in a minute. But let's just follow his argument here. And I'm going to just read a couple of verses from each one of these sections, because we can't possibly go through all this. It would take uh, a couple of days. But he's answering that question. He's answering that question, why can God hold people accountable? 
for who God is and what he's revealed among himself. So he says the very first thing is God has revealed himself in creation. Yeah, Fred. Uh, he's revealed himself, as you stated, in, in different ways to different people with different levels of, of knowledge and, and revelation, right? I mean, I, is that kind sure, of what we're sure. saying? Another word for light would be revelation. And, and then, um, so uh, we have um, a, a certain amount of information, and the question is, since we're all at different levels of information which we believe, or at least are exposed to, to believe or not, then uh, does that include the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, to all mankind? No. How, mm -hmm. okay, yes. no. Can you deal with that a little That's bit? That's what I'm dealing with right here. In other words, each one of these categories is truth. Each one of these categories has truth about God. It has truth about what God is doing, who he is, and to what is he holding you accountable. So, I mean, I mean, then the final and complete revelation is Jesus. But that's not the only revelation there is. Right. Okay? So, let's look at Romans. If you have your Bible, just turn with me, because I, wanna, I don't want to read all of this. Like I said, it'll take us... But... Just look at what Paul says. Because remember, he's trying to answer the question, how can God hold every human being on planet Earth accountable? Verse 18, chapter 1, book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by the, their unrighteousness Suppress the truth. That last phrase, that, that is the most important phrase in this entire section that starts with verse 18 and goes all the way through 320. They suppress the truth. What does that mean, suppress the truth? What does suppress mean? Keep down. Uh, tamp down, beat down. Is it a willful act? Is it an intentional act? Yeah. Yes. yes. So what Paul is saying is, God has every right as the creator and sovereign of this universe to hold people accountable. And he says his wrath is revealed. That's a hard, that's a hard phrase in the 21st century, but it's a phrase in the Bible from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Why? Because humans have suppressed the truth about him. The first example begins in verse 19, and it lasts through the end of this chapter. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. That's a pretty convicting verse. What can be known about God is plain because he's shown it to them. All right, Paul, in what ways has he shown it to them? Verse 20, he explains it. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, 
have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, what does that mean, the things that have been made? What does that mean? It means everything, our bodies and the makeup of them and how they work and the solar system. Yep, just just everything. Everything that is a part of the physical world, everything. So I just used one word, creation. I don't know if any of you get National Geographic. Uh, My wife gets me out for Christmas, but last month, Issue of National Geographic was really a good one. It had an article on Abraham Lincoln, had an article on Trajan's great column in Rome, and it had a, an article on the Hubble telescope, the 10 favorite photographs of the Hubble telescope. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh, Hubble yeah. telescope. Yeah. You know, it's just absolutely incredible photograph. I mean, I, I just, I sat there, I just studied them, and I thought, how can anyone look at those and study those and say there is no God? that this is just all a product of random forces that have no meaning, have no purpose. They just happen. Paul is saying there is enough evidence about God's existence, about his power, about his nature. Now, not, not, not all the details of salvation, but that there is a God. I know something about his nature. Can you study the world in the physical universe, and have a sense of the order and structure and stability of this universe. That, that this universe is based on, on mathematics, mathematical proportion and order. Yes. I mean, that's why we can fly people into space and know exactly where they're going because of mathematics. Well, why is mathematics? Because it's, there's a certain predictability and a certain order. Now, you can say that's just a product of randomness or... There is a design to this place that we live in. See, all Paul is saying is there is adequate evidence, adequate light, adequate truth, adequate revelation to reach the conclusion that there is a God who is powerful, who is eternal, and has a nature that is incredibly awesome. And every human being on earth has evidence of that. David writes in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. He said, I look at, you know, he's, he, if, I, I've been to Israel many times, but at night in, in the Middle East, because there is not a lot of artificial light like there is in the United States, it is in, it's spectacular what you can see. And David, one night he's looking out, he just writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. He said that the heat of the sun, everybody feels it, which is interesting because even the heat of the sun, which everybody, even a blind person who can't see the stars and the sun, feels the effects of the sun. Everybody has evidence from what God has created to reach the conclusions. But then he goes, this is really fascinating. Then in verse, uh, he continues, now, having been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things have been made, so they are without excuse. Do you see that? They're without excuse. Men, nobody is going to stand before God and say, I never knew about you. You never revealed yourself to me. What do you think God's going to say? Oh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. I did reveal myself to you. 
Because what the next verse says is instead of honoring and giving thanks to God, what did they do? They made idols. And they started worshiping the created thing instead of the creator. And I, I know you know this, but throughout human history, idolatry is pervasive in most civilizations. Not all, but most civilizations. What have they done? So going back to that, the initial thesis of this section, human beings are accountable to God because they have suppressed the truth. And the first illustration is they've suppressed the truth of God as the creator. His power, his, his nature. And they start worshiping created things. Not the creator. Uh, he was a native in the jungle and he's seen the solar system. And maybe he had not heard the gospel, but he knew that, he, that there had to be what we call the higher power. And if that's all he had, you know, with the solar system, um, that's, that's what he would be judged upon. That's what he would be held accountable for. Held accountable. That's right. Okay. If that's, you know, if he hadn't heard but gospel, if a person responds to that revelation, God continues to send more revelation for them to respond to. And again, about the little boy that got thrown off the bridge, or kids that die in infant's uh, syndrome of some kind, sleeping, uh, they have a, their, their exposure to God is very limited. But, but I'm suggesting that if they haven't been exposed, and then they're going to... They're not going to be held accountable for like uh, hearing it and rejecting. It. In other words, the little guy that yeah, the river yeah. would probably be up with the Lord. Yeah, I, I, I can't answer that with um, certainty, Woody. But I do, um, I do think that. Um, uh, let me put it another way. What, this is not a biblical phrase. You can't find this phrase in the scriptures. But it's a phrase that has been used over the, the centuries. And the phrase is the age of accountability. Okay? In other words, let's use your illustration of this young boy that was thrown off the bridge there in Elkhorn River. But, you know, let's back it up to an infant. Let's back it up to a miscarriaged infant. Let's back it up to an abortion. Let's back it up to an infant who dies at, you know, six months old or something like that. There is, it's, it's absolutely incapable of them to respond to anything about God because they, they, they just can't understand it. So that's why, uh, and another example would be severely mentally ill people or severely retarded people. I studied under a man who wrote a book entitled Heaven for Those Who Can't Believe. And it's a delightful little book because he, he charts through thinking theologically, how does God respond to a baby or a severely retarded or severely mentally ill person? And I mean, there, there are humans like that. Not many, but there are some. It's just they, they have the mind of a small infant. They're just incapable of responding to anything. So I don't know. But therefore, what we know about God is we would say 
God will, because of the finished work and complete work of Christ, God will let them into his heaven. And you know, there are some intriguing verses in the scriptures, especially in the book of Revelation, where it talks about people of every tongue, every tribe, every nation around the throne. Some have suggested that there are many, many of those people around the throne who are infants from some of those tribes because they die, there's no way they can respond because it's incapable, but God in his mercy because of the finished work of Christ takes them to heaven. So from that perspective, you are even more awed by God's amazing grace. Because what Paul is talking about in Romans 1 through 3 is not the baby who doesn't have a chance to respond. That is a theological problem that we have to resolve. He is talking about human beings who have had multiple opportunities to respond. Let me give you one other illustration. The Bible talks of the books. The Bible says at the Great White Throne Judgment, the books are opened. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about those books. I mean, it doesn't tell us what's in it. It doesn't tell us who's keeping them. It doesn't tell us the specific, but it says God will use whatever's in those books. God will use those to say, because of this and your rejection of who I am, I am going to judge you. I've thought about that a lot. Um, And I'm going to say something that may or may not be agreeable to you. But among the things that are in those books, I believe are the the examples in a person's life who has rejected God of all the opportunity he has given them to respond to his grace. It isn't just a list of all the evil things they've done. It's here is every opportunity I gave you to respond to my grace. And just you you start thinking of it that way because that's the point of this. What Paul is doing in these three chapters is that that humans are accountable for their sin. It isn't something God caused. It isn't your environment. You have intentionally and willfully chosen to reject God's revelation. And the first revelation people reject is what you see and can learn about him just by studying his world. And see, that's one of the, well, anyway, that, but that's, a long answer. Uh, somebody had their hand what, up. What about those that believe in God that aren't Christians? I know that probably varies by which ones. Well, Satan did that. He believed God existed. I mean, you. I don't know what all you mean by that, but believing in a God is not sufficient either. But it's what you do with all of this truth that we're just beginning to to investigate. So, I mean, because the end has to be, you know, depending on how you respond. Because people respond to what Paul is saying here, respond to God's revelation in his creation by saying, I will not worship a creator. I'm going to worship the created thing. And, you know, that's the origin of Hinduism. That's the origin of of so much of... of, of uh, of the religions of the ancient world as well as many today. They do not worship God. They worship gods, plural. It's a world filled with gods, and each force of nature and each represents an individual god. And so are they theists? They believe in God. Yeah. 
or they believe in gods. But that is a part of their rejection of the revelation of creation. But so, what about like what about like because I, I really a lot of them are they have multiple gods. Right, but what right. about like Jews? That's chapter three. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Last thing. Um, one of the things when I was teaching, uh, I was an assistant youth pastor for a few years. I didn't use this terminology, but it's kind of coming out of the discussion. The five rule, for instance. So comprehension plus saturation is going to equal an evaluation or a decision, right? So depending on what, because my six-month-old last night, or my grandson, I held him and I was reading the interactive Bible on the iPhone. He's just trying <coughs> fingers on there. He doesn't comprehend anything. But he's getting it, right? He's, it's being delivered to him because I'm reading it to him. But he can't be held accountable because there's no comprehension, which goes back to the special needs folks as well. So depending on it, and this is God's judgment, and that's where we love his grace and mercy and, and everything that he provides for us, but what is the comprehension level? What is the saturation or education level? Either one of those. That's going to lead to God's evaluation, not ours. And thank God it's not ours because that's not our responsibility. But I think that if you can present it that way, because that question comes up a lot, and one people seem to understand that answer based on scripture. The one that is hard for me, and this my mother and I butt heads all the time about it, is how does it play into effect when you say that when you have the scripture that I am the way, the truth, and the light, the only way to the Father is through me, how will they be introduced to Christ? Again, my answer to people when they ask that is that's God's decision, not ours. If somebody who is five, the young man, if he died, well, when he died, it's God's choice to have Christ meet him wherever they meet and just say, hey, welcome, let me talk to you. And maybe they make the decision then. Or the Native Americans, that's where my mom and my brother has all the time. They worship a lot of things, not necessarily idols, not all the tribes worship idols, but they did animals, the sun, the moon. Those are all God's creation, not their own creation. So there's another you know, are those idols or are those a representation? God has shown his beauty all around them, so they worship the beauty created. My mother is of the opinion that since they didn't worship Christ or they didn't worship the one true God, they're doomed. And I just don't believe that personally. So, maybe that's chapter four. Jim, I think a follow up to uh, Steve's question uh, is you could have someone who believes in. God, he suggests, I think he's suggesting, correct me if I'm wrong, but they haven't gotten to the point of understanding the meaning of the crucifixion. So, and, but maybe they're headed in that direction, and but suddenly they're in that train that derailed and they're dead. Based upon what we've said so far, and I, I think I understand what you're saying, uh, what, how would you answer that? Answer what? What, what? what am I answering? Well, they believe that this cannot be random because there's too much, it's too orderly. Okay, so they believe there's a God. Right, but they haven't gotten to the point where they understand the death of Christ and the reason for it. Based on the criteria that we're talking about today, where would they spend eternity? Well, I do not presume to be God. I don't know what happens to someone in the last moments of their life. But John chapter 14, 
says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Amen. So if you do not respond to the revelation of Jesus, you will not be in heaven. And if you haven't yet gotten to the point of understanding that, but you believe in God, where will you be? But have they been without, without responding to the revelation of Jesus in obedience, you will not be in heaven. So the question is, have they been told about Jesus Christ and the crucifixion? Do they know about what that's about? No, have they been told about it? Because God's going to judge them based on the knowledge that they've been given, education, saturation. No man comes to the Father but through me. we're We're asking questions here that, I mean, in one sense, are hypothetical questions because the way we frame the question is you're framing the question as if it is unjust, for God to hold them accountable. You know what I mean? I know that's not what you're asking, but that when those questions are framed that way, implicit in back of it is God being unjust. And how do you explain God being unjust? Paul is not arguing that God is being unjust in these chapters. He is arguing that God is being just. Now, I, I get really animated here, so forgive me for raising my voice, but you, you, have, to underst- you have to understand you have to understand the, the vantage point of what the Apostle Paul is arguing here, where he's arguing from. How can God say to human beings, I am going to hold you accountable and judge you? And you say, based on what? Based on the revelation, you know, using our metaphor, the light that I have sent to every human being on earth. Every human being on earth is exposed to this is exposed to this and to agree degree to this because these two are connected. Our job is to make sure everybody also hears about this. Yes. But every human being, and the, the principle of the Bible is that when a person responds to God's revelation, he sends them more revelation. So if a person is responding to creation and conscience and the implicit moral law of this universe, God continues to send them more revelation. And so, and again, ultimately, whatever God, and however God does this, no one can ever stare God in the face and say, you are being unfair and you are being unjust. Nobody can ever do that. What did Paul say? They are without excuse. Now, I don't mean to be so categorical, but we cannot load our questions. And that, I know you weren't doing this, but we, and this is... I, I, all my life I've done this. People, the implicit backdrop of what they're asking is God's being unfair. And you, you, you just can't say that. Whatever God does with every human being, however God makes those decisions, God's not being unfair and unjust. It is impossible for him to be unfair and unjust. Which is the ultimate reason why he sent Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the answer to all the mess of this world. And it is in and through Jesus that everything is made new. But what Paul is trying to say, uh, uh, to, to strongly argue in this passage, is there are, God has continued throughout history, has continued to send revelation of who he is, 
what he's like, what his nature is, what he holds people accountable to. And so, you know, if you just go on with me in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him and give, how do they know God? Because they knew what he created. They know about him because of his creation. They didn't honor him. They didn't thank. So what did they do? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. Now that that covers the gamut. Images. Another word for images would be idolatry. In all of its form. Reptiles here. Uh, yeah, creeping things, reptiles. That's yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's just there, there's this this whole gamut of idolatrous possibilities here. And so, yet what Paul is saying is, there's enough evident in creation to respond to God and some do and then God sends more revelation but the evidence from human history not not of every single human being but the evidence from human history is what human beings have done is they do not worship the creator they worship the created thing they build images and idols and all those things that are a part of now go over to chapter 2 Verse and again, I'm, because of the nature of this, I'm just summarizing some things. But look at verse 14 and 15. Now again, what he's doing here is he's capping off something that he's been discussing. But in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, for Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secret men by Christ Jesus. Okay, what is he telling us there? That God's moral law is written on their hearts. Their conscience is sensitized to the moral law. In other words, let's put that sounds abstract, but let's let's bring it down. Isn't it amazing throughout every civilization that has ever existed, you do not have a civilization approving of premeditated murder. Doesn't say it doesn't happen, but don't prove it. You write into the law books. It is permissible for you when you get angry with Joe to shoot him in the heart. We establish as, a, as a, uh, a system of our law code, you can shoot Joe when you get mad at him. You know, can you think of a civilization, there, I mean, there are, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but where they have legitimized pedophilia or legitimized rape. That doesn't mean they don't occur. That's why in Roman Catholic theology, they speak much of natural law, that there are certain basic natural codes that define the way people relate to one another. And it's universal. Where does that come from? See, what Paul is saying here is that comes from God. He's written his moral law in your heart. You have an innate sense of right and wrong. And what the Bible talks about then, and this is, you can chart, I wrote an article on this one time, you can chart it through the Bible, how people respond to this. They harden their heart. 
They, they become rebellious, and they suppress that. And that, that couple that threw that little boy off the, the, the bridge, they started light with an innate sense of right and wrong, a sense that it is a monstrous evil to throw a small child off the bridge after you kill the child's mother. And, you know, that's, they're just, where does that come from? Well, it comes from God. Philosophers have, uh, who do not necessarily follow Christianity at all have struggled with this for centuries. Why do people have an innate sense of right and wrong? That as they grow up, they suppress that, they start to harden that, and they don't follow it. Well, Paul is saying that comes from God. God has done that. And so what he said, if you notice what he says again, that on that day... When God judges, he will use this as a means of holding people accountable. I didn't know about you. I didn't know anything about you. I didn't know there was a... Oh, yes, you did. I put my law on your heart. You have an innate sense of right and wrong. And, you know, you, you watch little children, you know, and they're very, very young. They, you know, they, just, they have an innate sense because mommy tells them not to do this, daddy tells them not to do this, and... You know, they, they basically listen and they know certain things are wrong. And if that is not reinforced throughout their lives by mom and dad, through a school system, through a culture that you're going you're gonna to have spiking juvenile delinquents, you're going to have dysfunction in the home, you're going to have messes in schools. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's kind of where we're at. Because one of the things that the scriptures make very, very clear is this innate sense of right and wrong is to be nurtured and reinforced by the family, by the state, and by education, whatever that might take. I mean, Moses says that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As you are about to enter the land that God's giving you, here are the things you need to do. And part of what he instructs is, parents, raise your children with the covenant community in the knowledge of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. What do you do with that truth? You put it in your heart. You internalize it. You accept it. You embrace it. And he says, and you teach it to your children. Amen. You teach it informally to your children and formally to your children. But when all of that breaks down, then what God plants in a person's heart hardens and becomes encrusted. And you have individuals like the Nazis in World War II just slaughtering Jews and going home and having a nice family meal with their kids and, and you know, listening to the radio or whatever they did in, outside those camps. They could sleep at night because they took this and suppressed it and hardened it and could justify monstrous evil in the name of Adolf Hitler. This is really important because this is one of the things that by this, I mean this issue of conscience. Because philosophers have just wrestled with it. They can't explain it. Why do human beings have this in that sense? Is it a product of evolution, which is impersonal and random, which is basic to evolution? You're going to have hard trouble. You're going to have trouble defending it from that perspective. And, uh, well, anyway, I'm getting beyond the one more. One more. It's God's moral law which he gave um, to Israel. God's moral law which he gave to Israel. 
this whole section, it starts in verse 17 and goes all the way through um, a good part of chapter 3 of the book of Romans, focuses on the Jews, focuses on Israel, and God's moral law that he gave to them. Now you have to really be careful because God says, in chapter, Paul says in chapter 2, which we just read, God puts his moral law on our heart. But the moral law given to Israel is an expansion of that. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. You know, and you're very familiar with that. But the book of Deuteronomy is generally regarded by most um, scholars as a commentary on the Ten Commandments. It's just in every facet of life. And there are, when I teach ethics, I go, the principles that are in the Ten Commandments are, are, are they're not rigid laws. They teach something. It says, for example, do not lie. What does that mean? The sanctity of truth. Do not steal. The sanctity of property. Do not murder. The sanctity of life. You, you follow what I'm saying? In other words, it isn't just, here's a rigid law for me to obey. It is teaching you a principle of the moral order of this world. Where's that come from? It comes from God. He puts it on our hearts, but we click, we can quickly harden it and encrust it so that we don't follow it, which is what happens to conscience. So God then takes it another step, and he articulates it in a series of principles, and he teaches it to a group of people who are then to teach it to everybody else. And generally speaking, in all three of these categories, what has humanity done with it? And Paul tells us. They suppress it. So then, I mean, he conti God continues to send more revelation, and it caps off with Jesus. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 of the book of Hebrews, it says, in these last days, and that just a phrase meaning the last and final revelation of God is Jesus Christ. He is the final revelation. And so the, the, the bottom line of all of this, and it's, that's in effect what the Apostle Paul is saying then in, in 2 Thessalonians, which is what we're studying, that Peter, excuse me, Paul is saying, you're, you're under a lot of persecution, but listen, there's coming a day when God is going to hold every human being accountable. Those who do not know God, who did not respond to him, and those who have heard the gospel have not responded to it. So in a way, what we're doing right here, going home, visiting our grandchildren, making our families right, we will be rewarded for everything we're doing right for him. Is that part of this of what we're doing? Well, I actually didn't get into that, but uh, that's a whole other. I'm sorry, but it matters. Well, it matters. It it does matter. Yes, it matters how you live your life. But you, you're not saying. I know you're not saying this. You're not saying that you live a really good life and then God says you're okay. That's not what this is. That's not what it's teaching. Uh, you know, the, the whole point of the gospel is it is impossible for you and me to merit God's favor. This is why he sends Jesus. Now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then it really does matter. 
It really matters how you live your life because now you're a transformed person. You, God is in the process of conforming you into the image of his son, and that matters than how you, 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 you live your life. Um, so, any questions about this? This is what Woody asked about last week. Wow, I didn't even pick up the whole meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? We are, I think, weekly receiving additional life. Absolutely. You know, by coming here. Absolutely. You know, Not because of me, but because of the word. Yeah, That's right. Um, <laughs> what's that? Somebody's got to guide the light. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a brief response to the additional question that can be raising? And that is, for the light that I have, but I, I, didn't, I, I didn't live to 50 or 60 like so many other people have lived. I, I died at the age of, you go to whatever the age of accountability is, right at that. Right. I'm sure they're going to only use a lot of arguable points, but I'm not even sure it's going to be a matter of argument. I think it's just one pronouncement of the kind of judgment. Yeah, yeah. Daryl, this I mean this is this is hard for us in many ways, but I think we have to keep coming back to a a a foundational principle that is throughout God's word, and it it, it revolves around two parts. Part number one is you can never charge God with being unjust and unfair. Okay? So that means, therefore, because that is true. That means God has given every human being on earth that has ever lived, is living, or will live, opportunities to respond to his revelation. These are examples of his revelation. And as a person responds to them, God gives more revelation for them to respond to, which is one of the reasons why you have the missionary movement. You know, you know what I mean, modern missions, you know, where you send people all over the world. Why? Well, you're telling them about Christ. Uh, one of the really neat things that's happening right now here in Omaha, and my church, we just had a meeting, had a board meeting on Monday night, but we had a gal come in. Her whole focus is she works with international students here in the United States and here in Omaha, particularly with the, the couple of universities here in town, where you have students coming from Oman and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. Nations, it's impossible to go there and talk to them about the Lord Jesus. It, you just can't do it. But hundreds, and, and in the whole United States, tens of thousands of them are coming. And her whole focus Last Sunday, uh, well, when, yeah, last Sunday, my mother, wasn't my Sunday, Mother's Day? Last Sunday, and she, she has, it's a neat ministry, but she took 10 Omani guys, for instance, Oman, which is a Muslim country, 10 Omani guys to church with her on Sunday. Mm. Now, front row of this church is Julie and all 10 of these guys, plus a lot of other people too, but, and this, these guys, and she said during the worship time, the singing, they're clapping in nursery. She's yeah. saying, I'm trying to figure out what they're doing. Yeah. You know, they're, they're excited. <laughs> and, this, and it was really interesting. One of the guys, after the meeting, they came back. She has a house that she uses for uh, these meetings. Came back to the house. And he said, where can I get a copy of the Book of Life? Oh. What did he mean? The Bible. Where can I get a copy of the Book of Life? Now, her whole, her whole focus, and there are many others, some of our students are involved with her and, and so on, but her whole focus is to expose these kids 
young adults that are coming to the United States to study to the gospel so that they can take it back with them. Because we can't get there. I mean, you and I, I mean, we, we might try to do it, but we're, we are guaranteed to be arrested. To go into Saudi Arabia and start preaching the gospel, you're probably going to be arrested and, and end up in prison. But, and so it's a, it's a neat, because why? Because what she wants to do is expose these guys to this last and final revelation of God. And I'm telling you, I mean, I've seen it again and again and again in people's lives. When they start reading the scriptures, honestly, I mean, really start reading it, it begins to transform them. They, start, they, they have so many questions, and it keep, you keep getting them back. You've got to make a decision about Jesus. You have to make a decision about Jesus. Because he's the final revelation of God. Here's who he is. Here's what he's done. Here's what he wants to do for you. Isn't that an example of what you're talking about? It is. I mean, it just, it's like a it magnet is. that draws people. And I'm telling you, there, are, there, are, there have been a number of books written about this. What we hear, what we hear on the news is terrorists, people wanting to blow things up. But in these Muslim countries, it is unbelievable what is going on. I mean, there are little churches being found, secret churches. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Now, I'm not talking about millions of people. But God is at work in those countries. And, and, and it's, uh, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely astonishing. And it just, I keep thinking when I hear these and read these things, I keep thinking what Jesus said in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell is not going to prevail. And I mean, that's just, you know, oh, that's, that's right. No matter what we hear on the news, remember, God's plan and God's purpose is moving forward. Okay. Goodness. Question about these guys that are the atheists of naturalists. Yeah. How do they, um, like almost all of our medicine originally came from a plant. The plants were there to help us heal. That's true. How that's do they true. think that's random? Do they think that far? Or I not not specifically on something like that, Ed. And that's a good, that's a really good good thought. That's a good illustration. Uh, you know, it, it. I found that in most cases, these these guys are not really very consistent. Honestly, in their in their rigid atheism or rigid naturalism, because it ultimately comes back to, I believe it is much more difficult for them to defend what they believe than they really believe it. And, you know, I've, I mean, I've zillions of times, I've had people say, I'm exaggerating, zillions, but dozens of times, how can you believe in a good God when this happens, the train accident, for example? And I say, you know, okay, I understand. I have, a, I have an explanation. I think I can help you think about it. You know, you have to have an explanation for that, too. Every worldview must explain evil. You know what I mean? Every worldview has to account. Every worldview has to account for that accident. So how you, you, you okay? You're going to challenge why I'm saying, and I'll defend why I think God is good. But you have to defend too. How do you explain that accident? How do you explain the earthquake? Every worldview has to explain that, <clears throat> and that's something we sometimes forget. Because what I usually do is I say, okay, I'm going to give you the explanation of God's word. I'm going, I'm going to tell you why I think God is good, even in the midst of that. But then I want to hear your explanation for it. How do you factor in what you are calling evil? Because I want to know why you think that's evil. I want to know why you think that's bad and how you define good. 
Because, see, we have to, the criticisms, well, I don't believe in God, because how would God allow that? Okay, okay, that's, you, you're, you have the right to believe that if you want to. But I want to ask you a series of questions. And that's the same with these guys who are these rigid nationalists who believe everything is a result of randomness. Push it. But that means you have to sit down and have coffee. You have to take time with these guys because, I mean, you can't do that in five-second conversation. But it's just there's an incredible inconsistency in so many of these people's criticisms of Christianity because they don't have an answer for this. And all they're saying is you're preaching a good guy. How does your good God do that? That's not the only way to approach it. But I want to ask you, explain to me from your worldview how that happened, why it happened, and why it's evil. I, I, I think for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, and the bottom line of all this is I do not want to believe in a personal moral God because then I'm accountable to him. I think that's the bottom line of all this. I mean, they, you, you sort all of it away. It gets down to that core thing because if there is a God who is moral and who's personable, I am accountable to him. And that's a very, very hard thing for somebody to wrap their arms around. Because it matters. It matters. <laughs> we got to quit. Well, Woody, we didn't make any progress in Second Thessalonians, but we did lay a way. It's not the only way to start looking at this, but it's an overview of how the scriptures present it. I'm going to pray. <laughs> Lord, we're grateful for your word. It doesn't, um, it doesn't always reduce all the tension we feel in this crazy, seemingly chaotic world we live in, where there are accidents and where there's tragedies. But Lord, ultimately, we have to keep coming back to two major foundational truths. You're a good God who has created a universe where it is very clear for us to know about you but secondly, this is a, a planet made up of people who are rebelling against you, who have refused to acknowledge who you are, who have refused to acknowledge that you are that you're good, that your your moral and ethical standards are for human good and not arbitrary, and they're in rebellion against you. They want to do things their way. And Lord, that's simple, but that's the bottom line of this world. You are there. You have created it. You've given the resources that are needed. But humans have chosen to rebel against you. And ultimately, that's why you sent Jesus. You became the second person of the Trinity, Lord Jesus. You became a man. You added to your deity humanity. You know what it's like to be lonely. You know what it's like to suffer. You know what it's like to experience pain. You know what it's like to be brutally beaten. You know what it's like to have your blood shed. You know all of that. And every human being who's experienced any of those things has a God who knows what it's like to suffer. But ultimately, the cross and the resurrection solved all that problem. You became a curse for us so that we can experience eternal life through you. That is the message of the final truth of what you're doing in this world. Thank you for the opportunity to explore and to think and to apply the truths in your word to our lives. We want to represent you. We want to represent you well in what we say and in what we do. 
for we exist to bring glory to you once we put our faith in Christ. Help us to be good representatives of you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.